You're listening to HIV Frontlines, U.S. Edition, the body's podcast series focusing on frontline workers in the HIV epidemic in the United States. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. This is Olivia Ford reporting for The Body. Today's Frontlines U.S. interview is with Gil Robertson IV. Gil's brother, Jeffrey, tested HIV positive in 1982, and their family, defying the norms of the time, immediately surrounded Jeffrey with love and support. Inspired by his family's experience, Gil began gathering stories from dozens of African Americans about how HIV had altered their lives. The result is not in my family, AIDS in the African American community. In this one-of-a-kind anthology, leaders such as the Reverend Al Sharpton and entertainers like Jasmine Guy and Monique write about HIV along with activists, artists, HIV-positive people, and their relatives. Whether you are looking for smart commentary on issues that keep the HIV pandemic raging in black communities or longing for models of supportive responses to a loved one's HIV diagnosis, this is the book to read. I've invited Gil here to discuss his book and his amazing family. Welcome, Gil Robertson. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing the work and vision of this project. What? Oh, of course. Our pleasure. So can you tell me a little bit about how your book, Not In My Family, came about? I understand that it was the culmination of a really a long journey for you. Yes and no. I mean, I'm a journalist, so I cover, you know, as part of my work, I cover interesting and provocative and topical subjects. And obviously, given my personal history with HIV and AIDS, it was something that was always in the back of my head. My brother, my elder brother Jeffrey, has been living with HIV for over a quarter of a century now, 26 years and counting. We had sat down and talked about sharing our family's story with others in the hopes of helping other families get through a lot of the difficulties associated with, you know, living with someone who has AIDS, knowing someone who has AIDS, all the different emotions that an individual in their family would go through, you know, when dealing with these circumstances. What was your family, your mother's and your father's initial reaction? Our situation, which is why the book became an anthology, because as I began to put together the initial groundwork for the project, you know, I very quickly discovered that our family was a bit of an anomaly, you know, as things go with this particular disease. And unlike most families, unfortunately, our family really took a circle the wagons approach where, you know, everyone in our immediate family and extended family, you know, was just there and we were going to stick by him. Uh, you know, as he went through this journey, there was never a question, never a hesitation. And there was certainly a willingness, there was an immediate buy-in that, you know, we are family and that we're going to respect those ties, those ties that bind us as family. Immediately after he found out that he had been infected, did he tell the family right away or did he have some trepidation? Well, you know, in terms of the timeline, I'm not really sure. By the time he was tested positive, we were already living away from home. And, you know, I was called home for a family meeting, and so I duly showed up, and my brother met me, and we went to the our bedroom that we shared as children, in fact, and he told me. And all of the range of emotions that one might expect upon hearing, you know, such heavy news, you know, went through my head, and I was, you know, it seemed in some ways just surreal, because, of course, as he was telling me this, what I heard was that he was telling me that he was going to die. You know, I mean, that was just a shock. We all know that all of us are going to die, but, you know, at the time, we're talking 26 years ago, it was like, well, 
I'm going to die, like, soon. Because back then, you know, folks were dying, like, in a calendar year upon testing positive for this thing. So it was difficult. It was difficult. It was certainly fearful, and it was hard. It was hard to really grapple with what the outcome of this could be and what it would do and mean to, to me as an individual and to our family as a whole. So, I mean, watching my mom, my mom apparently knew a little bit longer than I did. I'm not really sure my dad found out, when our dad found out, except that he said something to me one day, really in passing, that let me know that he knew. And so, you know, the family pretty much just went on as normal. I mean, obviously, everyone immediately, you know, went to the libraries. The Internet wasn't really a, a major fixture at that time. But, you know, we went about collecting information that would hopefully prolong, you know, his life and maintain his good health. And, uh, you know, we took certain precautions in terms of, I guess, our interactions with him. You know, family dinners became, for a while, you know, an exercise in making sure that the proper cleansing things were available, you know, such as bleach, washing, you know, dishes and things like that because, you know, that kills the virus. And so, I mean, early on, you know, again, we're talking over a quarter of a century ago, so, you know, there was some exercise in trying to make sure that just that everything was all good. But, I mean, there was never really any kind of controversy, you know. I mean, I, I just can't imagine how a person can abandon a family member. I mean, how do you love someone one minute and then throw them out the door and have nothing to do with them the next? So there was never any of that in our family. And even in our extended family, I think the tone that my parents, that our parents represented, was followed by each and every member in the family. And although when I spoke of trepidation, I was speaking of some vibrations coming from certain quarters within our extended family that were not as welcoming, but everyone came around fairly quickly. And, you know, again, I have to applaud our parents because they truly set the standard. You know, this is our son, this is a member of this family, and we're going to support him. And I think really that it's, I mean, shame on you families for anyone who takes love and takes the bounds of family so lightly that they would use something like this to diminish another person, the person that they supposedly love. But I'm going to get off my soapbox. Oh, and that's wonderful, especially in the early days that your brother had the vast majority of your family support right off. I mean, back then, people didn't know how the virus was transmitted. Did he tell you all how he got infected? Did he have any idea, if you don't mind my asking, how he got infected? Well, we just assumed it through sexual contact. I mean, my brother is gay, so that at the time was, according to the media messages, was the primary way of exposure. So that assumption was made, but he really doesn't know how he or who the partner was who gave him the disease. And again, that wasn't a big deal. The fact was is that he had something, and it was important for us to offer our support. And as you say, with your book, that is quite an anomaly, especially back then. I mean, definitely even now to have a family be so supportive. But getting back to the book and speaking of family, I mean, the book has such a powerful, evocative title. Why did you title the book, Not In My Family? You know what, because it was just really meant to send a message out to folks that you've got to stop living in this bubble, that this is something that you've got to stop isolating yourself from this issue, that this is something that is in all of our families, either directly or indirectly, and that it was really time for Americans as a nation, and black America in particular, to just come to grips with the fact that this is not, HIV and AIDS is not a disease that you can run away from, you can't negotiate it, you can't out talk it. It's something that we have to face and deal with if we're ever going to solve this problem. 
So now, what do you think is particularly hard for African-American families and African-American communities in dealing with HIV? Well, it's a combination of things. Still a lack of information, a lack of resources. In some quarters, there's still a lot of questions about, you know, how this disease is transmitted and how people are exposed to it. You know, there's, there's still a lot of half-truths and, and old wives' tales associated in urban myths associated with this disease that really needs to be dispelled. There's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of apathy as well. I think familiarity breeds comfort, and that was really, you know, the crux of gathering the cross-section of voices in the community so that people would know, could see that, you know, that, oh, okay, well, so-and-so has a story. Well, this person has a story. Folks that they could relate to, folks that they perhaps admire, and hopefully that would give them the courage to be able to step out there and really confront this disease, you know, in a way that was proactive and moved the community, would move science, would move mankind forward in being able to uh, find a solution. You know, folks are were into, you know, folks are still into hiding, they're into denying the existence of this. And, I mean, as long as you deny something exists, you're not going to solve the problem. You know, the first effort that anyone has to make in dealing with something is, is confrontation. And after you've confronted it, then you can begin to devise a way of dealing with it in a constructive manner. So that's really what, you know, you know, the title sort of speaks to is that, you know, hey, it's time for all of us to recognize that HIV and AIDS is something that is in our lives, again, either directly or indirectly. It's something that we don't want to catch. It's something that we want to be aware of. And it's something that for those who in our lives who may have it. It's something that we want to, it's a situation that we want to be able to provide compassion and support to. Well, the conversation breeds a familiarity, which hopefully will alleviate the silence around the disease. If you know that folks, again, that folks that you respect, folks that you admire, also have a story to tell, then it allows you to come out of the shadows and reveal your own truth. What were your specific goals with this book in terms of who you wanted to read it, what groups or communities, in addition to the African-American community and families? You know, I really wanted everyone, everyone who I think could benefit from the stories that are shared. I wanted all Americans, all people, you know, around the world to be able to draw some comfort, some solace from these stories and from these experiences that are shared in the pages of Not In My Family. You know, Maxine Waters said a year ago on Capitol Hill, you know, that Not In My Family was a book that, you know, every American family should have. And, you know, I mean, it's my title, but I, I would agree. I mean, it's, it really is an incredible piece of work. And it's funny that when, you, you know, when you're in something, you really often can't really see the impact that it's having on others. But I must tell you, I've gotten calls and letters and emails and texts from folks who told me that you know, reading the book has really changed their lives. That Most recently, I was reached out to by a friend of mine who bought the book for her sister, whose husband had succumbed to HIV and AIDS. And she was like, you know, the book allowed her for the first time in 10 years to really have a conversation with her kids about you know, how daddy died. And I was like, wow, that just really blew me away that I could play a role, you know, in allowing this family to begin or to fully heal, you know, from the death of a loved one. So, you know, that was really the goal. It was really just an exercise to celebrate my brother's life, to celebrate his resiliency, his spirit, 
in, you know, turning every stone to help him manage this disease. It was a celebration of my family for providing him with the support, you know, mentally, spiritually, financially, to deal with this situation as well as they could. And it was also an effort to really send a message out to society that this is something that we really need to pay attention to. My goal for Nat and my family was really in recognizing that our community is not a monolith, that there are different pockets, different streams of thought within our community, I really wanted this to be sort of like the family coming together. You know, I think I described it to someone as Christmas dinner at grandma's. And, you know, everybody's out there living in the world, living their own lives, so you have, you know, all the different personalities, all the different personality types now sitting at this big family table, you know, from the debutante to the professional brother to the hip-hop guy to the straight-up thug. You know, you have Shaniqua sitting there with, with Biff. And, you know, we're having a conversation about this. You know, Grandma gets to the head of the table and she says, look, we have a problem in this family. It's HIV and AIDS. We're going to sit here and we're going to talk about it. We're going to throw all the stuff out there on the table and we're going to hopefully... You know, when you leave here today, you're going to leave here at least giving some thought to the situation and what we can do on an individual level and on a collective level to find some solutions for these circumstances. Wow. Well, you definitely do that in terms of bringing everyone to the table. So now you say that your brother has been living with HIV for over 26 years at this point. Had you already been working in journalism at the time that he was diagnosed positive or did you... You know, I'm not sure, probably not, because I was, I think I was still in school. So, no, I wasn't. Uh, I'm 43, so no, 26 years ago I would have been, I think I was like 19, I was in college. And so, no, no, I wasn't, I wasn't a working journalist. But I've always, you know, dabbled in writing and I've always had an appreciation for, you know, the art form. And so, you know, it's no surprise that working in the media is what I do today. Have you covered HIV and HIV-related topics in addition to your work on this book? You know, early on I did. Early on, wow, 20, 20 years ago, I guess, or uh, soon after finding out and soon after, uh, you know, sort of embarking on my, my journey as a journalist, I did a couple of stories on HIV for uh, a hip-hop publication called Rap Pages, and I contributed some pieces there. Uh, one about our family and another one about uh, a facility in Los Angeles that sort of gave care to to individuals who were, you know, dealing with with HIV. And I wrote a couple of other pieces. I, I, you know, I was fairly open about the situation that our family was dealing with from day one. I really didn't see what the big deal was as far as, you know, if so, again, if someone was going to have a problem with me because my brother was HIV possible, you know, then that was their problem. I certainly wasn't going to deny him, you know, in favor of someone else. Whenever I was asked to, to comment or write about uh, my brother's situation or how our family has reacted to it, you know, I always step to the plate. So now through all of this, because you have been so open about your brother's status and about your family's reaction, have you encountered a lot of sort of reactions that are based in homophobia specifically? You know, we've gotten some of those. I don't know whether it's a reaction to homophobia or what, but, you know, there have been callers into radio shows and, you know, things like that about people who feel that it's, you know, retribution, it's an act against nature. But, I mean, you know, again, I'm not going to really tolerate that. And I think my, my energy probably lets people know that I'm not really the one to probably make those comments to. 
fortunately, I haven't really had to deal with a lot of that. For the last year since the release of the book, I've been doing quite a few lectures on the topic, particularly in the African-American community or in disenfranchised communities across the country. And you've had to deal with a lot of silence and a lot of, again, trepidation, you know, from audience members who really don't know how to come out and say that they have a story to tell or that they have concerns about this situation. You know, folks are very preoccupied about what others might think. And so typically during a presentation, you know, you might sometimes spend an hour just really breaking through a lot of the barriers that exist, you know, around this subject. But the good thing is, is that once you're able to get past that, just incredible. I mean, it just, you know, it flows like water down a river. Do you think that after all of this work, the book that you've put out and the efforts of so many other organizations like Black AIDS Institute and also Bomb and Gilead working in churches and other groups, what have you seen as being the effect? Have you seen a dramatic decrease in HIV or change in people's attitudes, really, or institutional attitudes towards people with HIV? The efforts of Phil Wilson and Pernessa Phil have been beyond exemplary. You know, they have certainly been loyal and dedicated foot soldiers in pushing forth you know, an agenda that, you know, speaks directly to the community and speaks directly to the concerns and issues around this particular disease in black America. Has it caused people to change their behaviors? I'm not really sure because, you know, we're still seeing caseloads remaining equal, remaining level with where they've been for a while now. I think that the word is spreading. I think that because of my project, because of Not In My Family, because of efforts put forth by the CDC and by, you know, Bob and Gilead and Black AIDS Institute, that there's, I guess, a greater awareness, a greater uh, understanding that this is something that needs to be addressed. Is it being addressed in the way that it should be? I mean, one only can only look at the presidential primaries that are going on right now. I mean, conversation about, you know, HIV and AIDS in the community hasn't really been put out there, even though one of the candidates is an African-American. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I um, you know, the book has, has performed well. The CD musical soundtrack that is a companion piece for it has performed well. So, you know, obviously there's some people, you know, we're, I just signed a deal for an audio book for Not In My Family that will be coming out this World AIDS Day. So I guess we're making some headway. I won't feel that we're making enough until the numbers drop drastically. So this is a story that's still in progress. You have such an amazing collection of writers and people who are represented in the book. You've got political folks like Jesse Jackson, religious leaders like Reverend Calvin Butts, and you've also got Shirley Ralph, who's been an HIV activist for years and years, and also Monique, who's very outspoken from her pulpit from sort of the comedy world, and you've got a lot of regular folks also who talk about their experiences with HIV. So how did you decide who was going to be included in the book, and do you have any favorites also? Well, I don't have any favorites. I think depending on what day of the week or what mood I might be in, you know, when I read the book, a different essay may strike me or, or say something to me or, you know, feed me, nurture me in a different sort of way. And I, I think that most readers would agree that, you know, all of the stories, all of the contributors did an excellent job in sharing their truth and sharing their story and sharing their pain, their fears, their hopes their triumph associated with this situation. As far as collecting the essays that are included, it really wasn't as difficult as, as it might seem. And I am an A&E journalist, so I've spent, I've spent you know, nearly 20 years 
uh, covering the world of celebrity. So it was really just putting the word out that, you know, I was working on this project and folks finding the time to participate. And we also, you know, put the word out via various message boards online, you know, for regular people or for everyday or folks who aren't necessarily in the limelight to, you know, make story submissions. And uh, other than that, I just reached out to other people who I thought would be important that people would would listen to that would make a difference in people's lives, people who had respect within the black community, and ask them, you know, straightforward and simply, you know, would you like to take part? So you didn't get anyone who was resistant to working on the project or sort of being publicly associated with it? I didn't get anyone who was resistant. The only camps where we just didn't get any answer at all were from, were unfortunately, by and large, from the world of athletics and also from the world of hip-hop. No one came out and directly said no to me. Folks would just either get the information and just not remember to call me back or not remember to follow up. And, and I don't know, I'm making assumptions here. You know, we did have a couple of athletes, and they, you know, just happened not to meet the deadline, you know, after it was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So, I mean, what do you say? And I don't cover sports, so I guess those people really didn't care. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a fairly painless experience gathering the contributors who made it into the book. That's interesting, though, that you received a little bit of sort of a more tense response from the athletic, the sports world, and also the hip-hop world. Why do you think that is? Feel free to uh, opine about that. Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, African-American men, mostly. I think that black men have a lot of um, issues around their identities and, and the role that sexuality plays into that. And uh, obviously it was very important to speak to that particular group within our population, within the African-American population. So, you know, we found other voices to pick up the slack, you know, which is why you have the adult star, uh, Mr. Marcus, who gave us a, a terrific piece. You have other voices. You have several hip-hop journalists who, who spoke very well uh, about their feelings and reactions to the situation. As to why, I mean... You know, the attitudes that fuel black masculinity in this country, you know, contributes to why, you know, those folks remain silent. See, every day on television or walking down any big city street, you know, the hyper-masculinity and the over-the-top, uh, you know, it has a lot to do with people's self-esteem, how people see themselves, and just things like that. But, I mean, you know, since, I have to say that since the book has come out and folks from those camps, from the hip-hop community and the sports community who have stepped forward and said, you know, hey, you know, I wish I had gotten back in touch with you. You know, I do have something to say. So if we decide to move forward with a part two, you'll see an interesting mix, some interesting additions to, you know, the existing text. That's great. That's actually really, I mean, that's really good to hear that you're getting some postpartum interest. But you did certainly find people to sort of represent and respond to the sort of approach to masculinity that you're talking about in volume one. But did you assign any of the essays specifically saying, you know, I want this person to speak specifically to this aspect of HIV? Yeah, there were specific talking points that I wanted to address, you know, in the book. I certainly wanted to, you know, for there to be some thoughts, some some words given to, you know, would you date someone with HIV and AIDS? So, you know, I found two heterosexual women and, you know, one gay man who spoke to, you know, to that that conversation point. I wanted to be fully representative of the black community. I very deliberately went after some Afro-Latin. People seem to forget that 
you know, you might be from Dominica, the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico, but that your roots are still of Africa, are African in origin, and that, you know, if you're living in this country, you know, very often you're perceived as a person of color or as an Afri a person of African descent. So Nancy Mercado very quickly stepped forward and agreed to give us a piece sort of, you know, offering us the nuances that are uh, particular within, you know, the Afro-Latino community. Josea Cabrera, you know, is an African-American uh, born in Tanzania who grew up there but who now calls Minnesota home. And I thought it, was it would be interesting to have him talk about um, his experiences in both places. And so he wrote a real, you know, telling piece, a very uh, interesting piece. So, yeah, there was a deliberate effort in, you know, in making sure that there were some voices represented. Shirley Ralph was a must. I mean, we couldn't do it, you know, without having, you know, Cheryl had been out there in the front lines for so long that it was just, you know, I mean, she had to be a part of it. So, you know, we wanted to have some humor interjected into some of the uh, the pieces as well, which is why, you know, we have an essay from the three black chicks, which is a troupe, an acting troupe out of Los Angeles. And they deliver their message in a way that the target audience, you know, can definitely understand. And, you know, then you have, of course, the Congress people, you know, obviously they're, you know, community servants, so they, you know, have their bit to say about the issue and what they're trying to do and what they have done on the effort. You know, we have a mix of young people because I was on the phone with a, a good friend of mine who is a uh, creative director for Congress, for Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs, and we were talking about the subject, and it prompted her to have a conversation with her son, who at the time was... 13, and so she asked him what he knew about HIV, and, you know, just during the course of their conversation, he told her that he wanted to be HIV positive. So needless to say, I got this call from Melvina, very concerned, and just, my son wants to be HIV positive, and so, you know, we got him on the phone to, you know, try to get into his head, and what we discovered was that to a 13-year-old, he associates anything with positive attached to it as a good thing. When you get positive marks in school, you're rewarded. So HIV positive, he thought that, that was the camp to be in. And obviously, you know, we were, he was quickly told otherwise. So it was, it was interesting because, you know, from the mind of a child, of course a child would, would associate, you know, the plus signal with something great and the, the negative symbol with something that's not so great. So that was an eye-opener because who would have thought? You know, we have the religious community represented. Obviously, you know, Reverend Calvin Butt presides over one of the most important ministries in this country, in America. So he's there. I wanted to have voices of folks who had succumbed to the disease, high-level people like Max Robinson, who was the first African-American anchor for ABC News, I think on any network. His brother, author, activist, lawyer, great American, Randall Robinson, gave us a terrific piece. We also have a piece from dance music star Sylvester. His sister wrote a very uh, touching essay about the brother's life and what he meant to her. Did you get the most response from any particular piece or a distinctive response from any one piece in the book? Different pieces hit different audiences in different ways. That was obviously delivered, as we just discussed. I wanted something that spoke to, you know, the various communities within the black community. As far as standout pieces, you know, Sweet Tea Ethics, Black Love, Healthcare, and Cultural Mistrust by Ed Garns has been a highlight piece. It's a piece that I often use, you know, in my presentations. Was there any particular reaction that any one person or any group of people had to one piece that sort of sticks out in your mind? 
There was a great deal of conversation about a piece called The Revolutionary Act by Craig Washington, who was an HIV-positive AIDS activist. And in the course of his essay, he writes very detailed about... Uh, he expresses his thoughts in a very um, unapologetic way. And there was some concern that his piece could turn off certain areas of the community. So there was talk given to making some edits. And in the end, you know, I really had to respect his voice and where he was coming from. And, you know, I mean, the fact is that, you know, gay people do have sex and describes how they have it. So, I mean, let's grow up here. You know, again, people who aren't willing to look at the world as it really is, I mean, they shouldn't pick up the book. This is about us not wanting to, you know, paint a pretty picture or put on rose-colored glasses about us really wanting to confront the facts and realities associated with HIV and AIDS. And so there was a lot of, you know, talk given to Craig's piece, and I'm glad that I stood the course and went ahead and left it as it was, because it's a brilliant piece of work. In your book, do you address any HIV denialism or any conspiracy theories that are related to HIV? You know, some people think it's a conspiracy from the government or the drugs are really what make people sick and they don't take them. But, of course, that has catastrophic results for the individuals who take that course. So do you cover that in the book at all? Do you talk about denialism? We certainly cover it in the introduction. There's a fairly extensive intro. There's also an appendix at the back that offers useful terms and uh, associated with uh, this disease, as well as a, a listing of nationwide listing of centers where people can get more information. So the Power of Truth by Al Sharpton, you know, Reverend Sharpton certainly touches upon conspiracy theories and folks sort of feeding into denial or, or paranoia, you know, with regards to the situation. There are several pieces that speak to that. Fortunately, you know, in covering those issues, the essayists were quick to bring folks back down to earth and acquaint them with the realities of, you know, it really doesn't matter how a person got the disease. I mean, buying into conspiracy theories isn't going to help your son or daughter if they're living with the disease. It's really about mobilizing. It's about dealing with the issue at hand in a very realistic and a very straightforward way. We can deal with all of the other issues after we've dealt with this one. This book has been out for over a year now, came out in 2006, and, but we've been dealing with the epidemic for over now 25 years now. Why now, after all of this time and with all of the work that has been done, why did you feel that this was an opportune time to put this book out there? You know, it was really just time. It was really, really time. The first meeting I had with my brother was in my house in my den in Los Angeles. And ironically, I ended up finishing the book in L.A. too. I went home to finish it. But, you know, I decided to move, relocate to Atlanta, and that's where I really began to pursue the project actively. probably took us about a year to sell it. There was a project that you can just throw out there that's going to take wings and fly away, and, you know, and take flight. The type of project that you do need a certain amount of due diligence in order for it to succeed, which is why I appreciate your, uh, you know, taking this time to uh, provide a, another platform for it. Um, you know, in my life, my life is very, very busy. You know, as I mentioned, I think it probably altogether took about four years from the point of me sitting down with Jeffrey and saying, you know, hey, you know, do you want to do something, to actually getting it done. Both that was largely on, on my on my scheduling, but I just really didn't have the time. I think I don't have a really interesting story to, to tell you there, other than that it was just me living my life that kind of got in the way. So there wasn't an event or something that made you feel as if this is the time to have it? No. 
book. It was amazing that no other book had been released similar to Not In My Family. I mean, you've had, of course, a lot of different, you know, books talking about the disease, talking about the black community and the disease, but you had never had a book that was where black people were talking about the disease themselves, which is, it was just crazy that it took 25 years into the epidemic uh, for, you know, someone to organize a group of African Americans to share their thoughts and feelings about a disease that disproportionately affects them. But I drew a lot of my inspiration, in fact, from Randy Schultz's book, The Band Played On. So there are a lot of books out there, obviously, since Mr. Schultz's book, that have spoken to this disease and have offered explanations or attempted to bring about a better understanding as to why this disease is happening now and who it's happening to, the, the population groups who are, who are being affected. I'm glad. I'm glad that I, you know, hopefully it will change some lives and hopefully will make a difference in how people are living and coping with HIV. Well, it sounds like it already has and will continue to as well. Well, I certainly hope so. The one thing I enjoy the most really is interacting with young people and talking with them about the subject. And the workshops that we have, let's talk about sex and the age of HIV and AIDS, are really, really, really crowd pleasers. And students walk away feeling different and prepared to make a statement and make a difference among their peer group and in their home communities. So I'm, I'm in awe at the, you know, at the reaction and at, you know, the ability to be able to influence young people people and all people really in some way with the messages that are featured, you know, in Not In My Family. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners and our readers? Again, thank you for the opportunity. You know, the body does phenomenal work and I'm, you know, I certainly am glad that it's there as a resource for people. Please visit the website www.notinmyfamily.com. Reminder that there is also a music companion, Not In My Family, Songs of Hope and Inspiration through Sony BMG uh, that features Kirk Franklin, Donnie McClurkin, Tremaine Hawkins, Byron Cage, and other top gospel acts singing songs that hopefully will inspire people to make a difference and to live their lives with their heads held high, you know, those folks who have been affected by HIV and AIDS. So that's basically it. Well, thank you so much, Gil, for taking the time to speak with me and to tell me about this amazing book. Good luck with it, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been HIV Frontline's U.S. edition from The Body. Be sure to check in frequently at thebody.com for the latest news and information on HIV. 